Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Except for the occasional random bloody incident, American labor is often missing from our history books. But in dusting off the archives, we find a rich record that details the bitter, deep-rooted David and Goliath conflict between a small but determined group of union organizers and behemoth capital bent on their destruction. The Farm Equipment Workers Union, FE, practiced a militant and democratic form of unionism that contested the boss's power and forged interracial unity in the heart of the Jim Crow South. Did I mention that many of the union leaders were self-proclaimed communists? There's a good story here. Let's discuss. Well, hello, everybody. We're here on another podcast. Hi, Greg. And uh, we are really pleased to have uh, Dr. Uh, Gilpin, who wrote the deep, the long, deep grudge, a history of capital, radical labor, and class war in American heartland. So Tony is just so glad. I'm so pleased to have you. I read this book and uh, Greg sent it to me and I said, oh my gosh, it was, we, we talked for an hour on the, on, on the phone about your book. It is so good and it's such a real treasure. And um, so a, a little bit about your background, your, uh, your uh, PhD American history uh, recipient from Yale. Um, right. Our, a historian, writer, uh, you are uh, write for a lot of journals, progressive, more progressive journals, mm-hmm. and uh, you've written a couple of books. You wrote another book about the uh, clerical strike in Yale. Was that what? Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> right. I mean, I happened to be. I was fortunate to go to graduate school at Yale in the mid 1980s, um, which dates me. So um, to study with uh, the renowned. Uh, labor historian David Montgomery, sort of the premier American labor historian um, who's passed away now. Um, and David had assembled around him this is sort of astonishing um, group of young uh, aspiring academics. Many of us um, came from not your traditional academic backgrounds. I went to Chicago Public Schools, was not the usual type to go to graduate school at Yale. Mm-hmm. But we were all kind of fortunate because we went to study labor history, but while we were at Yale, some labor history was actually being made in that the clerical workers there organized a union, um, won that union in a close vote and then went out on strike while I was there in what was an extraordinarily well organized um, and ultimately successful strike. Um, one of the few in the, in the mid 1980s, um, one of the few bright spots for labor. So um, I, along with my um, husband, who was very involved also in student support work. Um, he was a law student then for the union and a couple of other um, good friends in, in history who were also ardent union backers. We wrote the, the book on the Yale strike called On Strike for Respect, the clerical and technical worker strike at Yale University. And um, it's really sort of a what we were most drawn to or what the story we want to tell was the organizing uh, model that the hotel and restaurant workers there utilized, um, which was not unlike the model that I speak about a lot in my in this current book. You know, a really rank and file based democratic uh, um, union organizing 
model that proved successful at, and then sort of spawned a whole host of graduate student organizing drives and other university organizing drives. So, so that was my book from a long time ago. And then, and then this, this, this newer book is um, just came out last year. Well, I, I, I'm not in the field of it. I'm not in the field of uh, union history and so forth. I came from the field of education. And one of the, the real treats in getting to know Greg is he has filled me in on this such rich, rich history that doesn't show up in our doesn't show up in our history books. That the influence of how important uh, the labor movement and the radical part of the labor movement was in shaping many of the things we take for granted uh, now. And it's been just a real, like I said, it's been a real treat for me to have this this part of history exposed to me. So, um, and it, it, this is old hat for Greg because this is his, <laughs> this is in his wheelhouse. So your well, book I, I have to say I. I had the pleasure of meeting David Montgomery. He was in Pittsburgh before he went back to Yale, right. I believe. And so and he was active here. He wasn't just an academic. So right. he, uh, he, he was a brilliant academic here as well. And uh, I remember he, uh, he chaired the uh, support committee we had for District 5 United Mine Workers uh, during that period. I got to know him personally. In fact, he and his wife uh, had a uh, progressive Seder. Uh, and uh, I'd never been to any kind of Seder, but it was an experience for me at his house. And he was, a, he was, he was in, in, indeed a great man, as well as a, a great professor of labor history. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yes, I mean, he had a, as you know, a background. He was not an originally an academic. He was a labor organizer, um, uh, a political person who had gone into, you know, became a machinist and a labor organizer with United Electrical Workers. So um, took that. And then when he got blacklisted and couldn't get a job anywhere. Actually, that's what uh, made him decide to get into academia. And so he combined both uh, this encyclopedic knowledge of history generally with a real understanding of workers' power and what on-the-job experiences are like. And that's pretty rare in um, academics, even labor historians today. So I was very lucky to um, to be there and studying with him, as I said, both for that reason and then because the clerical workers did me this enormous favor of organizing a union while I was there, so. Well, well, your book is The Long Deep Grudge, the story of big capital, radical labor, class war in the American heartland. And you write about where I grew up and where I, I had my, you know, the Northern Illinois and I, I have friends in, in Catlin and friends in Pekin. And so you're, you're writing about a part of the country that I lived in. And, and we will link to your book in the description notes, and I just I just recommend this so highly. It's just such a fun read. And I you, could you maybe start by just um, reading a little bit from your introduction, and and um, um, you know just just provide a little sure. bit of background. How about right, that? Right, right. Yeah, I usually you know I sometimes start by saying that this book is about a small defunct union and its relationship with a corporation that went out of business decades ago. And usually I found though that that didn't interest people very much <laughs> when I would put it that way. So um, it helps if I, um, if I start by reading from um, the introduction to the book, which I think places this particular union and this particular company in um, perspective and introduces readers to how dramatic this story of this union and this company 
um, really were. So the introduction is entitled Undried Blood on the Pavement, and I'm just going to read a little bit from it. A black man murdered in the pre-dawn darkness on a south side street. In 1952 Chicago, the rule was that such an event didn't matter much, not downtown anyhow. Reporters wouldn't be dispatched to cover it, the police would take their time investigating it, and in corporate suites, the death would have passed without notice. But this particular killing got plenty of attention. The victim was 52-year-old William Foster, an employee in the malleable iron foundry at the sprawling McCormick Works complex, the cradle of corporate behemoth International Harvester. He'd been a few blocks from his home, heading to work early on a mild October morning when he met up with someone who struck him on the head and fractured his skull. Foster died a short time later without identifying who had attacked him. He left behind a wife and two children. No witnesses came forward, at least not right away. The police, the press, and executives at International Harvester, however, were immediately certain where the guilty party could be found. Captain George Barnes, head of the Chicago Police Department's notorious labor detail, had no doubts about the motive for the assault. This was obviously a labor slugging, he promptly declared, because the Farm Equipment Workers Union was in the midst of a bitter strike against International Harvester, and Foster had chosen to cross the FE's picket lines. Within hours of Foster's death, International Harvester offered a $10,000 reward for the arrest of his assailant. This company will make every effort to safeguard every employee who comes to work. This crime must not go unpunished, said Harvester President John McCaffrey in a statement publicized across the country. Then the Chicago Tribune weighed in. There is good reason to believe that the Foster murder was communist inspired. The union at the particular harvester plant where he was employed is the Farm Equipment Workers Union, which was kicked out of the CIO because it is controlled by communists. So that's the introduction which kind of introduces these two um, parties at the heart of this story. The Farm Equipment Workers known as FE, this uniquely radical union that had managed to organize uh, corporate behemoth, as I call it, International Harvester, which though it's out of business now, was one of America's founding industrial empires, once the fourth largest corporation in the world, employed hundreds of thousands of workers across the globe. And uh, the FE was one of those unions that broke through in the 1930s to organize um, uh, International Harvester as the UAW did at Ford and General Motors and the steel workers at U.S. Steel, et cetera. But the FE's history, as I explain, it was a particularly militant, radical one. Its leadership, as um, indicated there, was associated with the Communist Party and continued that um, relationship, or at least that influence continued in the union through its existence. So that's the, that's the intro at any rate, and I'll um, toss it back to you for questions. Well, you, the, the, the writing is... You write so well. I don't know why this isn't a screenplay because you know normally <laughs> when you read these kind of history books that are so well footnoted and you know, but it the story is just like what's going to happen? What's going to, you know, this small group and 
self-proclaimed communists and they had a passion. They, they had a, a passion for what they brought to the labor movement. In fact, in, in one of your quotes, you, you said that, you know, their idea was that, the, you know, management shouldn't even exist. You know, this should be a, a workers co-op running things in a way. <laughs> you know, there, was a, there was a screenplay like that though, Pat, and it was called Salt of the Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Similar, similarly, um, uh, right, they did influenced that union. The jail, and that's probably right. why we don't have a screenplay today uh, based on FE or based on uh, Alice Chalmers local in UAW or the, anybody mm -hmm. else on the left wing of the uh, CIO. Yeah, so yeah. it's a, but it's a remarkable story. And I got to tell you, uh, it reminded me so much of reading Stalin over Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. you know, don't tell anybody, but I think you're a better writer. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, the, the terrain is the same, essentially. And the bad guys are the same bad guys. The right. good guys are the same good guys. Right. And the struggle is the same struggle. And the end is the same end. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, Walter Ruther's name comes at the end only too often in the history mm -hmm. of the left-wing unions in the uh, right. CIO. So, right. Right. so right. what happened? What happened? What happened that, that, that uh, um, smothered this really strong workers' movement? Right. took it all the way to the point where people could say openly, you know, you don't even have a right to exist, you know, in <laughs> our view. We're going to fight you on every grievance. We're going to fight you on everything. We don't, we don't, we're not worried about your, today you're told the corporation, you have to do all you can for the corporation. That's who you are. We have an identity of interest. Then they didn't see it that way. What happened, Tony? Right. Well, that's the big question. And I do, um, in telling this story, I mean, I was determined, first of all, to, to try to write a book that could appeal to people who are not academics. That was um, what I set out to do. And, and it's true that they, um, the FE, which was one of those left-wing unions associated with the Communist Party, along with about a dozen others that ultimately was expelled from the CIO in 1949, um, because the CIO, decla CIO declared that those unions, the labor establishment declared that those unions were communist dominated and so um, kicked them out, including the very sizable, the third largest union in the CIO at the time, the United Electrical Workers. Um, so those unions had similar um, philosophies of what, how unions um, should function that um, they retained this belief that management was their enemy, not a, not, um, not a group of folks that they could cooperate with and achieve good things for workers. But one of the things that I, well, I mean, as, as you know, because you've read the book, obviously I told this story because I have a personal connection to it. My father was among um, the FE leadership. And when I grew up though, because the FE had been by the time I was born, had been absorbed by the United Auto Workers. So my father had joined the staff of the UAW. So I grew up in that orbit of the UAW, going to UAW picket lines and UAW functions. And that was the union that, that I knew, the union world that I knew. And, and my father, though I knew that he had been a member of the Communist Party in his past, I knew that he'd been associated with this, this smaller union. He didn't really talk a lot about that. Um, he was never ashamed of his Communist Party past, never denounced that, but that was just something he was so, um, his job was so absorbing that um, I didn't really hear much about that. I knew though that he had this particular pride in that 
that uh, the FE, he thought that those, that particular union experience was the best um, experience that he'd had and that the, that union was something special, but I didn't really know why. And he died when I was in college. And so after that, I got, you know, I started getting interested in labor history. I started getting interested in, in, in poking into this story about what made this union so um, different, so unique, so, um, so radical. And in, so, in so loved. And, and so and, loved. So you're you've pointed to one of the key quotes. Um, one of the other members of the FE leadership described the union by saying the philosophy of our union was that management had no right to exist. So that dictated their um, philosophy of interacting with management, of their belief that workers' grievances should be addressed immediately. Um, this meant um, this played out in measurable terms. Uh, for instance, the enormously high number of walkouts that took place at international harvester plants where the FE um, was the representative. Um, but also they had this fiercely loyal rank and file, a very involved rank and file, in part because of this continual turmoil in the shops and this, this belief that workers' grievances should be um, attended to immediately which generated this kind of loyalty. So one of the other um, quotes that I feature in the book from one of the um, local leaders, an African-American um, named Frank Mingo, one of the Chicago um, International Harvester Plants said that the rank and file loved that union. And so that kind of devotion to this particular union, which not only um, affected the, the, the strength of the union in terms of its dealings with International Harvester, but also meant in the stories I tell of the particularly extraordinary local, FE local in Louisville, allowed for the union to build a kind of interracial solidarity that was really um, extraordinary for that time. Um, but, but before we get to that, and I think that's the best part, that's the best part of the story. But before, <laughs> before we get to that, uh, Greg and I have had on uh, uh, people talking about the Amazon thing and Besmer, and it was before the vote came out. And mm -hmm. in reading your book, I just can't help but wonder how would have FE been, how would have this been organized? How would have they responded differently in making more connections to the workers? And the and part of the book, I think the lesson of your book too, this changing the subject again, as you said, this was the long, this was a long, deep grudge that these things just didn't happen overnight. They just didn't come in and fix things. This was a slow process of establishing relationships, working with people, and and that's where they achieved their success. They'd have they'd have failures, but ultimately they were philosophically and passionately focused on the needs of their of their workers in in a battle against behemoth capital that was pretty brutal <laughs> right. right so tell right. me about the grudge and and maybe that that sort of the slow trod about how why they were so effective through their tenacity and their passion Right, well, the title, and um, this speaks also to sort of Greg's earlier point, actually the title, The Long Deep Grudge, I borrow from the great Chicago writer, Nelson Algren, who, um, who and, and the long deep grudge refers not just to um, the FE 
um, act the, the activities of the FE that took place in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, but that this grudge can be traced all the way back to the 19th century. And thus one of the more famous events in, in American labor history, the Haymarket bombing. And that's because, and, and Greg, I was gonna say that I agree with you that there are certainly um, many similarities um, to uh, the other left-wing unions, but one of the things that makes the FE story unique in their relationship with International Harvester is this, th the fact that they can trace their legacy all the way back to this Haymarket um, affair because the origin of International Harvester uh, began with the McCormick um, family's uh, harvester machine company based in Chicago that was the site in 1886 of a skirmish between police and strikers that led to several of the several workers being killed and that the next night was what what led to the, the the protest rally at Haymarket Square where the infamous bomb was thrown that then decimated um, that uh, the great uprising of 1886 on behalf of the eight-hour day um, in in the in the first America's first red scare that followed the Haymarket bombing uh, um, workers, Unions were destroyed. The burgeoning anarchist movement in Chicago was completely uh, obliterated, and um, and unions at McCormick Works, which had gained the eight-hour day, were destroyed. So, so the FE made a point when it came into existence in the 1930s of very consciously evoking this memory of the Haymarket martyrs, of their fight for the eight-hour day and that they were reviving the legacy that um, those workers had fought for. And it was the same McCormick family that was still in control of International Harvester that had um, been in charge of that McCormick um, machine company back in the 19th century. And young Cyrus McCormick II was um, very much involved in capital's determination to make sure that those anarchists were hung for um, that bombing. So, so it was Nelson Algren who wrote in 1951 of, um, and I'm just going to read that to you because it's it's the front piece of my book. Um, he wrote about the big dark grudge cast by the four standing in white muslin robes, hands cuffed behind at the gallows head, for the hope of the eight-hour day. The long deep grudge born for McCormick the reaper, grudges like heavy hangovers from men and women whose fathers were not yet born when the bomb was thrown, the court was rigged and the deed was done. So Nelson Algren writing in his book, Chicago City in the Make in 1951, still thought Chicago was deeply affected by that Haymarket um, bombing and the FE um, leadership when it took up uh, the mantle of organizing at International Harvester made conscious reference continually to those Haymarket martyrs. And so that grudge was carried um, through to um, their relationship with the still with the McCormick family. So that's part of what I think makes this story so unique and such a great story to tell because you not only have the union and all these fascinating stories among the union leadership, both local and national, but you also have this incredibly wealthy 
uh, McCormick family, sort of one of those, you know, typically eccentric wealthy families and all the kind of stories that um, that, that involves. But also, um, and, and this is getting back, um, Pat, to your point about um, Amazon and Bessemer, International Harvester was really one of the most important pioneers of the kind of anti-union tactics that Amazon is using today. Uh, they morphed from the kind of draconian, just labor repression that they used in the 19th century, just just bludgeoning workers and making sure they got hanged if they were fighting for unions to the more sophisticated forms of union avoidance. And when one of the first corporations to introduce an industrial relations department, one of the first to introduce a host of company unions all the way back in 1919. Those were kind of stealth though. Those were just used as tactics to, I, that was fascinating when you talked about the company the company store and the company cafeteria and these worker groups and that was just a way of controlling it was a it was a ruse in a way it was just another way of controlling the workers and exploiting them through their piecework stuff and that's fat talk a little bit about that and 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 john becker <laughs> uh, yes yeah he's one of the um He's one of the people that I, um, whose story I tell, who's kind of an un, certainly unsung and um, a hero to, to me. Um, yeah, because International Harvester, like Amazon isn't doing anything. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to management technique. And so all of the same kind of things you, you see Amazon doing, which is to combine obviously the carrot and the stick. So both um, trying to ferret out and get rid of union supporters, but at the same time, offer these enticing rewards to workers who will be loyal to the company. And that was what International Harvester, you know, decided was it was a much better, much more successful way of maintaining their control over the workforce than just outright repression or combining, certainly combining the two, ferreting out the union supporters, but rewarding those, those, those employees who would demonstrate the right um, forms of loyalty. So, you know, the company introduces these, this host of programs in the 1920s under the rubric of welfare capitalism. So mm -hmm. pensions, cafeterias, um, you know, some, some kinds of vacations. But again, employees who weren't loyal enough wouldn't get those things. You had to qualify for them. So if you didn't, if you exhibited any kind of um, recalcitrance or resistance to, to the kinds of um, demands that management made on you, then you know you wouldn't get you would either get fired or you just wouldn't get those rewards. So when the company and you know one of the ways again also of avoiding what was obviously in 1917 with the Russian Revolution, 1919 with a rising um, worker consciousness around the world, you know employers are getting very nervous about um, union um, uh, union organization. And so International Harvester comes up with this notion and a host of, of, of the other really huge corporations did this too, but a small number of them to introduce this, these company unions into their plants. So why would, you need a, why would you need to pay dues to an outside organization when you've got an organization right here free of charge that, you're, that, will, that will also bring your concerns to management? So again, exactly the same thing that Amazon is doing now. Um, and they actually had workers elected to be representatives that would meet with management in these monthly meetings at these company unions. Now, again, one of the things that's important to note is to qualify to be even be able to run as a company 
rep to be a worker representative for these company unions, you had to meet all kinds of qualifications. You couldn't be, you had to be an American worker, no foreign born workers. You had to have worked at the company for a long period. You, there was a minimum age requirement. So, you know, anybody that might have radical tendencies was, was kind of um, eliminated even from consideration. And that's why this fellow John Becker becomes so interesting. So at McCormick Works, the very same plant that um, was at the center of the Haymarket violence um, at their company union, this fellow John Becker gets elected in to, somehow to the, to the company union in 1922. In his very first meeting, he raises a demand for a wage increase. And through this demand, which he and he's well researched it, and he can show that workers are not making enough money to be able to make ends meet. Other workers who had been quiescent before, there hadn't been much discussion of anything except how great the company was before that. Start standing up and saying, "Yeah, you know what? We're not making enough money. We can we can't afford to, to you know to 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 feed our families and 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 pay our rent and." And this is very upsetting, obviously, to, to Harvester Management, who didn't intend for this to happen. And, and the only reason I know anything about John Becker is because the minutes for the Works Council survive. Um, other than that, I know nothing about him because shortly after this happens, after this dust up over this wage increase, he disappears from the Works Council record. He um, could have been fired. He could have just been transferred. He could have, you know, there are all kinds of things that could have happened to him. But at any rate, he does not um, get to continue on as a worker representative, which isn't surprising because that was not the purpose of those company unions. Um, but that kind of behavior by the company ultimately exposed those company unions for what they were, which was just a sham operation to encourage workers to think that maybe management would hear out their concerns and then address them and actually do something about them. But as the years went by, it became more clear that that was never gonna happen. And so then you get into the 1930s and the Great Depression and the rise of industrial organizing with the CIO and those company unions um, finally get overturned. So that's the that's the long answer to who right. John Becker was, but why I, I think that, you know, those kinds of ripples that one worker can send out that kind of um, uh, courage that he displayed to say, you know, this is, we're not getting what we deserve, um, would have an impact that would go into, you know, would take maybe a, you know, well over a decade to really register. You know, before we get to Louisville, Tell me a little bit about how these this little this little engine that could FE <laughs> used um, used their num the large number of shop stewards and how they were fighting against piecework how piecework was kind of was was jipping the the worker and how they used these tactics of just shutting down these sites when there was conflict and getting immediate resolution. And probably that's why they were so much loved by their right. employees. So if you'd go to the, the shop stewards, the piecework and some of their unique mm -hmm. techniques that made them so effective in, in knocking off this behemoth. I mean, International Harvester was was powerful. Very and powerful. Small and yeah. passionate. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And again, I mean, just to return to Amazon and then maybe the, for the last time, I mean, I, 
I, I made this point recently in a, in a piece I wrote for Labor Notes with some historical reflections about the Bessemer vote. And we should remember that however powerful we might think Amazon was, you know, they, they pale in comparison to the power, the raw power that corporations like International Harvester and Ford and General Motors and U.S. Steel um, once had. So the fact that those corporations were ultimately overcome should give everybody some encouragement about what can be done at this moment, regardless of how difficult it may seem. Um, so to get back to um, what you raised about, about PeaceWorth, and that's one of the other things that makes this a unique story. International Harvester had this very bizarre Byzantine pay system, which wasn't piecework in the traditional sense where you were just paid for every piece you produced, but you would receive this base wage and that, but then based on output, you would receive um, additional incentive pay for what you produced. So it was a way to obviously motivate workers to work harder um, and but it was an enormously profitable system for international harvester and the communist inspired uh, FE leadership with their Marxist sensibilities saw this pay system as uniquely fine-tuned to um, extract every bit of surplus value out of their workers that um, that harvester management could um, could get and so, and it was also a, a system that led to, to just endless confrontations on the shop floor because every worker's pay was different than every other worker's because they had, you know, depending on how much you were producing and what particular jobs you were doing, um, you could be earning, doing what seemed like the same job um, as the worker right next to you, but, but receiving a very different um, amount of money for that job. So needless to say, this led to resentment and unhappiness and also this sort of endless push to work harder, to work faster and harder um, was really difficult on um, harvester workers. It was one of the motivations for um, organization in the first place. So one of the stories I tell, there's the story, this conflict between International Harvester and the FE, but there's also this growing conflict between the FE, this left-wing communist inspired union and the labor establishment that really begins to, um, to uh, uh, develop after World War II. And as the labor establishment breaks decisively from any kind of communist party um, connection and unions like the FE are still influenced by that philosophy, so the FE's belief is that these, these endless grievances that workers have in international harvester plants over their pay rates, over the pace of work, over wanting to, to work less hard than they are constantly being um, egged on to do, those, those um, grievances should be addressed immediately. And the best way to do that is by walking out of the plant, you know, by shutting the work down and by walking out of the plant. And, you know, one of the workers I quote talks about how effective that was that, you know, when we do that, when we do that sort of thing, we walk out of the plant when a worker has a grievance, it gets addressed right away, immediately. Um, and this was stood in stark contrast, though, to the growing consensus around the kind of more cooperative framework that Walter Ruther of the UAW would embrace in the post-war era. And this is kind of most famously exemplified in what came to be called the Treaty of Detroit, the 1950 General Motors UAW contract that was a five-year contract. It provided for workers productivity pay and cost of living increases, um, which 
which and, and good benefits definitely for um, GM workers, but it also obliged the union to ensure uninterrupted production. So you weren't gonna have walkouts over individual grievances in UAW plants, at least as far as the UAW was concerned. Um, and the, the left-wing FE leadership saw things differently. They were not interested in a union arrangement that obliged a union to enhance the corporation's profit margins that assisted the company in um, urging workers to work faster and harder. Um, so they resisted those kinds of um, clauses in international harvester contracts. They um, didn't uh, conform to no strike clauses. And they also believed in having this enormously large and powerful steward body. So they had a much larger um, shop floor representative um, group than UAW plants did. And those union stewards were in fact continually um, agitating and leading workers into um, walkouts over those kind of grievances. Um, and so you had this very, this, these, these amazing statistics that between 1946 and 1954 at FE plants, at, at international harvester plants represented by the FE, you had over a thousand walkouts you know, which is extraordinary. This is a 30,000 member union. So, you know, we, we're talking about walkout rates um, that surpass, you know, the entire 10 year period that we've just gone through, you know, and the, and the, the 60 million workers um, in America, you know, you've got FE, the 30,000 members of the FE walking out far more than than all those workers combined. So, and that's, and that those walkout rates surpassed anything comparable to what was happening, say, in the much larger UAW. So it just represented a different philosophy of how you deal with worker complaints um, and with the notion that management should have the ability to set the pace of work and set the conditions of work. The FE resisted that notion, just thought that that was not what a union's job was. And, and that's where I know, Greg, you don't have much love for Walter Ruther and his, um, how he became kind of complicit with management and essentially was yeah. responsible in a way for the destruction of the union movement because of his... Uh, he, he was the essential uh, player that turned around what was class struggle-oriented unionism, trade unionism, and turned it in, morphed it into something uh, that was uh, class collaborationist, that, that in fact argued that the interest of the workers, the interest of the corporation were really the same. And uh, so then in that post-war period, there was this linkage between productivity and, uh, and compensation for workers. It was almost a direct linkage, what Piketty calls the 30 glorious years, Francois of that era, here and everywhere else was really linked very much to that productivity increase being linked to worker uh, compensation. And so, and of course, it was a complicity with the US government because it was really based upon, it was a deal cut for the unions to also be handmaidens to US foreign policy. So it all fit together beautifully, mm -hmm. but it didn't fit together in the long run. And of course, when years later, when, when the tables turned, the the corporations and the U.S. government turned their backs on the workers in the 70s and it all went away. And that whole notion of today, the union movement is begging to get back to compensation commensurate with 
productivity gains. Right. They're begging for that. Right. Yet they gave it up. They gave the fight up in the 60s. And this is the payoff for that. So I'd be curious to know how you see, uh, Tony, how you see the loss of that militancy, that mine mill smelter, FE, uh, the old, the old steelworkers in their era before the Murray uh, changed things and the auto workers before uh, even until, until Ruther took it over, how, how that would play if that would still be here. Let's do a counterfactual. If, if we still had those kind of unions mm -hmm. today, how would things be different? Well, one of the things I do talk about and, you know, and, and what, it's not my phrase, but the phrase that I use um, to describe the Ruther philosophy and what becomes the, the labor establishment philosophy is this, the politics of productivity, is this notion that increasing um, productivity, increasing um, levels of output is the ticket to um, prosperity for everybody, for management, workers, the consumers alike, that as long as we just keep producing more, everybody can benefit. And that was a very appealing philosophy because it did away with the, you know, with a concept of class conflict. It seemed to suggest there was this way to, um, for everybody to, to do well. And of course that it, it, and it, and, and that is the philosophy that, that triumphs in the labor movement and in the general um, liberal um, uh, uh, vision of America for the 1950s and 60s. And it looks, it looks like it's working, right? Because we've got, certainly for UAW members who are getting good wages, good benefits. It's not working so well if you look at their actual work lives where they're being um, worked harder and harder. And then you start to see these cracks in the UAW um, uh, uh, vision, for example, you know, what happens at Dodge, Maine with the Detroit Revolutionary Union movement. You've just got workers who, who begin to, to, you know, hate their jobs with such passion because they're so overworked and because, you know, that, that um, there's really an explosion there. So you've got a problem both with the fact that the union can't really address the quality of life issues for workers in on their jobs, you know, because they've given that up. They've said that, you know, you can you can file a grievance, but of course the grievance procedure is so bureaucratic and takes so so long to ever um, establish anything. And so in the meantime, workers are still um, suffering from these incredible line speeds and and terrible conditions in the shops and and just in generally inhumane um, uh, work life experience. So the union isn't able to address that because they've basically ceded though all of those decisions to management. Right. Um, but at least you're getting the trade-off. At least you're getting pretty good wages and good benefits. You know, as we then move into um, the era of deindustrialization and those plants begin to shut down, uh, then the union, the UAW is really um, bankrupt in terms of an ideology that can address that because the whole notion has been you management, you corporation should try to make as much money as possible because all of that money is going to trickle down, or so at least a good portion of that money is going to trickle down to uh, the workers and then out to other people. And again, that seemed to kind of be uh, at least a reasonable formula for a brief period. But as the plants begin to shut down, because the obvious logic is that if, if we are um, encouraged to make as much as we possibly can, well, we can make even more if we 
take these plants overseas and hire workers who um, we can pay a heck of a lot less than you. And the union just does not, the UAW and the, and the labor establishment has no ideological response to that. So one of the differences I think could, could unions um, have you know, turned uh, America into something entirely different in the you know, 70s and 80s? I don't know about that, but at least they could have had a more coherent response. And at least I think if you had followed the FE model of trying to claw back as much corporate profit all along, um, than, than what the UAW did, which was to just augment all that corporate profit taking. You guys take as much as you want, as long as you're um, allowing some of it to trickle back down to us. They used those profits to not to, to reinvest in their plants, not to make sure that those plants kept operating, but to, to, to enrich themselves, to, um, to buy all kinds of other kinds of companies you know, in other places that were more profitable but weren't um, union-based labor. And so the payoff comes um, later on or rather the, the reverse payoff for the labor movement. So I think we could have had at least with that vision that management has no right to exist with this notion that these people are never our friends. They are workers' enemies we might have had at least um, a labor movement that would have more nimbly responded to um, things like plant shutdowns. And, and that gets to uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I, uh, by the way, the very first tractor I ever uh, learned to drive a tractor was a, was a Cub. A, oh, really? <laughs> you know, small little tractors. And yeah. before, before uh, the corporations uh, moved everything to Mexico and then to, you know, third world countries, they moved their factories to the south. And right. so they, the, the, the uh, International Harvester bought this big military facility and they were going to go to the south mm -hmm. and start a big plant there and, and suppress wages and have, uh, and tell, tell me about that story and how that didn't pan out so well. And a, a little bit about the two gyms. This is like the this was the best part of the story for me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a great, it, again, it's a great story because of the great um, individuals' stories involved that, you know, many of, uh, you know, I uncovered just a lot of this stuff as I was actually um, doing more research for the book. And some of these stories were based on interviews I did decades ago when I first did this in college. But at any rate, this Louisville part of the book is one of the most compelling. And I think, you know, obviously, relevant today um, stories, because it is a story of how to build an interracial union. And these days when we're confronted with notions that there are, you know, that the white working class can, you know, can be deplorable, can be, you know, irredeemably racist. I think that the story of the FE in Louisville really um, uh, calls that into question because, uh, it's, you're, you're exactly right. In 1946, International Harvester, along with, with just about every other um, big industrial concern in America, begins looking to the South, the, the non-wage, I mean, the non-union low-wage South as the panacea, as the way to escape from, from these um, bothersome unions that have um, organized in Northern cities. So um, along with so many other corporations, International Harvester uh, opens up a manufacturing facility in, in in the South, in their case, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, which was not completely um, non-union, but it certainly didn't have the kinds of unions um, that the FE, uh, the kind of union that the FE represented. And the FE um, 
follows the company south, um, begins an organizing drive. There are other unions also trying to, including the UAW, trying to organize um, this plant. And you know what makes the what makes the FE stand out in its organizing approach is that it makes very clear from the get-go to workers at the plant and International Harvester was somewhat unusual in that they had committed to actually hiring blacks in the plant for production jobs, which in the South, even in Louisville, um, was was not the usual thing. Most most then most African Americans, if they could get jobs in manufacturing concerns were um, relegated to, to janitorial positions only. They didn't work um, in production jobs. But International Harvester said they would hire um, African-Americans um, for all jobs in the plant. And they actually made good on that commitment, but that raised a problem for the unions or at least a concern for the unions that were organizing. How were they going to talk to white workers um, who are gonna constitute the vast majority of workers in the plant about um, about what the union was going to, um, how the union was going to um, deal with African Americans in the plant, and the FE made it very clear from the get-go that they that they were committed to interracial unionism. The union would be fully integrated. They would be committed to um, the promotion of African Americans within the shop, uh, and they painstakingly uh, made this clear to both black and white workers that as they approached them in the organizing drive, they had a white organizer and a black organizer who were the central um, leaders of that drive. And it's pretty extraordinary that the FE then wins that election. Um, and the story of that is, is one of the highlights of the book. But then even more extraordinarily, um, the union immediately turns around and confronts International Harvester on the very reason it went to Louisville in the first place. And that is that the company had announced that it was going to pay workers in this Louisville plant um, what it called the Southern differential. So a lower wage rate than workers received in um, its Northern plants, because after all, that was the reason it was there in the first place. Um, and the union instantly challenged Harvester on that pay rate. They take the entire plant out on strike. Um, they stay out on strike for 40 days. And this is, again, a, they're, this, they're so um, new to this. I mean, these workers have just barely been in this union. Most of them have never um, been in a union before. Many of them, they're young workers who have just returned from World War II service. So many of them, this is the first job they've ever had. Um, in this kind of situation. And yet they managed to, um, to, take this, to take these workers out on strike. They stay out on strike. In the process of this strike, they build all kinds of close personal relationships and, um, between black and white workers and forge the kind of unity and, that-, that and, their, and their wives. That was an interesting wives, story. It was wives, the, it was yeah, the, the yeah, black yeah. women and the white women forming solidarity with their common. That was a that was a critical part of this right, success. Right, right, right. So yeah, so that's why I think this story is important and relevant for young activists today thinking about how to build interracial solidarity. I mean, the the workers, the white workers who went into this plant as one as one of the two. There are two gyms that I kind of feature as you talk about one of them Jim Wright is one of the black workers who becomes very early on um, committed to the union in Louisville and he talks about how 
how extraordinarily racist the work, well, they're not extraordinarily, actually, how ordinarily racist the white workforce in Louisville was um, at that time. Uh, many of them had come from rural Kentucky and they carried with them the heritage of, uh, of racism that, um, that they had grown up with in the South. And so, and yet, you know, this union overcomes that and builds the kinds of not just, you know, union relationships, not just relationships in the shop, but close personal relationships that Jim Wright forges, for example, with a white worker named Jim Mauser. They become very close personal friends. Their families, their wives become friends. They go to each other's houses. This was not the kind of thing that was happening in then segregated Louisville. And so if it could happen then and there, it can happen now. Um, that kind of interracial solidarity can be built. Um, and this is one of the models that, that indicates how that can happen and, and what kind of power it has once it, um, once it occurs. So Greg, you've talked about this before, about it was uniquely the, the union movement with this uh, kind of passionate communist organizers that were one of the few organizations in our country that was creating racial solidarity. This is like pre- Correct. Pre-Martin, talk, you know, well, I, I, why you know, is I, that? It's, it's fair that. to say, it's fair to say a union movement that doesn't have, in the United States, doesn't have people that have either a uh, history of being arrested or history of having an FBI number assigned to them or being interrogated, if, if they don't have that as a background, they're probably not gonna lead workers very far. And that, that was true of virtually everybody in the militant 30s, 40s, and 50s. The, the, the strong people were people that, as, as, as when we interviewed Roger Kieran, he noted one of the uh, organizers for UAW, the communist organizers said, we can fight the company, we can fight the newspapers, we can fight the local government, but we can't fight our own union. And essentially that's where the final attack on this militancy occurred. And, and it, it was interracialism, which is identified completely with the communists, completely with the communists in that era. Almost all the pre-civil rights era organizations were communist inspired, communist led and or uh, and engaged with by communists somewhere along the line. And so all these things came to represent a kind of militancy. That was the militancy of the moment in the way that the IWW was the militant, militancy of its moment or the anarchist in the time of the Haymarket. Uh, all the uh, Western uh, miners, which was gave birth to the uh, mine mill smelter. They were all the moments, but they encapsulated what drove working class power forward. And that 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 was that was beheaded in this in the fifties and sixties, yeah. and so we're left with a situation where, and I I like to have uh, Tony's comment on this. What what do you think a veteran FE leader would say about the UAW today if they knew that four years ago, five four years ago, they created a two tier system that essentially introductory pay for United Auto Worker was the same as it was when Henry Ford established the assembly line. Yeah. If you, if you uh, change that for inflation, 
it's the exact same number to pay. And two, the level of corruption in the UAW today, I mean, all through the, not one leader, not two leaders, not a leader here, a leader there, all through the leadership, right. uh, levels of corruption. To me, that's the legacy of beheading this left militancy in the labor movement. And this country's paying enormously for it. But how do you think an FE veteran would feel about that, Tony, today, looking back at what they created and what the UAW is today? Right. Well, I mean, even as someone who grew up in a UAW, you know, what was then a UAW family, I mean, it's just heartbreaking to see the this corruption scandal is um, that has uh, uh, plagued the UAW now for a couple of years is, you know, is is truly heartbreaking. And and I'm not even going to, you know, for all the negative things I have to say about Walter Ruther, you know, he was never personally um, corrupt or on the take, and and the fact that you know the current UAW leaders have have been that is is something that would, you know, that even he uh, would uh, you know obviously be be horrified by, and and it's also again keep coming back to the Amazon discussion, it it it, it affects unionization efforts everywhere because when you've got that kind of corruption scandal at high levels of a union like the UAW, even if it's not the UAW that's doing the organizing, um, a management is going to point to that and see that's where your dues money goes. That's what they say, you know, that, you know, and, and I'm sure they were saying that in, in, uh, uh, in, the, in those captive audience meetings, see what happens with your dues money, it goes into the pockets of union leaders. Um, so every time that happens, regardless of the union, it, um, it corrupts, it, you know, it, it undermines organization efforts elsewhere. So, um, you know, I don't, I'm, you know, I think that there would have been a range of opinions about how, um, how it would have been possible for a labor movement to resist um, the power of, of capital ultimately. But again, I return to this notion that it's important, you know, it's vital for unions to recognize and operate on union leaders to recognize and operate on the notion that the people on the other side of their, of the table are their enemies and the enemies of their members. And as soon as you start thinking that, you know, they can be your pals and you can, um, you can cooperate rather than um, than uh, uh, cling to a notion of class struggle unionism. I think that's when the trouble starts. And after you know, Ruther at least had a coherent philosophy. Most of the people who followed him, not just in the UAW but in other unions, didn't have one other than um, it seems to work okay if we cooperate with management to kind of you know, get some stuff for workers. And so you've got, you know, a, a labor leadership today is largely devoid of any kind of governing philosophy besides let's see if we can manage to fend off some of the uh, concessions that we keep having to make. So obviously no labor leader from the 30s or 40s could be happy with the state of the current labor movement. I think those union leaders though who did have the kind of philosophy of um, uh, that the FE, the left-wing philosophy that the FE leadership had would um, 
you know, many of them would say, well, we could kind of see it coming. You know, we could kind of see that this would happen if we abandon those kind of principles. And to get back to the Louisville example, I mean, another thing that I think is really important is building that kind of interracial solidarity, which which is something that I like in the FE, I like to, in the Louisville example, I call, I like to refer to it as lived solidarity. So it wasn't just that they, they built this union and they committed to, to being um, anti-racist and then they, you know, and then that was great. And then that was the end of the story. This kind of constant activity, these constant walkouts, this constant battling with management also was essential to building that kind of interracial um, solidarity. So you had to do that all the time. You had to make workers on the shop floor recognize that when they had a grievance that they needed workers across the shop to walk out with them in order to ensure that their particular problem would be solved. And, and so we were constantly um, under, underscoring that need to, um, to, um, to practice solidarity. And when you, when you stop doing that, you also undermine those interracial ties, I think. And, and you said, you know, I, I, I think you said this, that, you know, I mean, there were racist in the South and then there were racist. And these, these, were, the, these were the more hardcore and they voted 70% for yeah. the FE. And not only that, their families were having picnics with each other and they had a sense of, of cohesion in the workplace that was a true solidarity. Right. And then what happened after all this was broken apart? What what yeah. happened? What, what was the? It went right back to where it was. Like with yeah. um, who was it? Henry Wallace and the, his famous essay in Fascism in America. You know, mm -hmm. it's here in our country, and it right. becomes with the division between how race is divided against each other by powerful uh, elites. And you know, tell me that isn't where we are. You know. Yeah, and then and I think you know it does go back to this notion that it would just be so much easier for unions if we could just you know negotiate a contract every five years and get some nice goodie package. But it's so much you know it's much easier on the leaders. It's much easier on the workers if we just leave it at that. And then you know and our job is done. Except that that, that every five year time when we get together and we share some some drinks with the managers and we come to some new agreement and. You know, and so again, the FE's uh, philosophy that you had to practice that kind of, that you had to practice unionism, rank and file unionism, radical unionism every day, or else those, those bonds of solidarity and that, that notion of class struggle would dissipate among workers and they'll retreat to that the kind of racism that they were schooled in the kind of the kind of isolationism that management tries to to um, to foster the kind of you know individual you know um, individualism that undercuts solidarity you know if you're if when you do that when you abandon that kind of constant you know encouraging workers to recognize that they are in a constant struggle that requires that they uh, that they bond with their um, fellow workers and um, all the time, you know, every day. Then you're you're laying the trap for for exactly what um, capital wants, which is a fractured working class, a working class that that thinks that it has that that it that its interests lie with um, placating 
um, their bosses rather than with right. with uniting with other workers. Um, so that's you know those are all the stories that I think um, are woven into this this story of the FE. And it was a tiny it was a small union, but they did achieve mighty things based on that kind of um, solidarity. But you know as as Greg said, ultimately, when you're taking on not just powerful corporations, but the government, the federal government, local governments, a reactionary press, and a labor movement, also establishment labor movement that has decided to um, to take you on, you know, it was ultimately too much for for one union to um, to be able to to achieve, and yet, you know, I mean, to be able to 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 overcome, but. I do tell the story even after the UAW, the FE makes the decision to merge with the UAW that still that militancy among the rank and file continues um, for some decades past that. And so that's also part of the story. Um, so so um, uh, we've, 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 we've been, you know, I want to respect your time, but let's, yeah. let's get to the violent, horrible car wreck ending of this <laughs> wonderful, wonderful part of our American history. It, it eventually was, you know, snuffed out by what? Uh, you said the consolidation with the larger union. We had Taft-Hartley. Yeah. We had uh, the red baiting. Uh, what, what was, it's gone now. Right, yes, yes. And well, and, and I, I started um, out this um, discussion with a bit from the introduction of the book, which begins with this 1952 incident. And if you, um, but to find out what actually happens with that, with that killing, with that, and with that strike in 1952, you have to read all the way to the end of the book. Because first I go back to the 19th century at Haymarket, and you know, and then I tell the story of the FE's organizing, et cetera, et cetera, and International Harvester, and and so you have to get all the way to the end of the book to see what happens with that killing. And I'm not going to say here because you're people I encourage people to read it um, but that sort of was the showdown the final showdown between International Harvester and the FE that took place in 1952 that killing was just one of many incredible um, violent outbreaks that takes place the this strike International Harvester makes clear that it is out to break the FE once and for all it's not it's going to keep its plants open it's going to encourage people to 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 come to work, it's going to bring in scabs. Going to do everything it can to um, to finally um, to break the FE, and it does become this this very violent strike. Um, and again, I'm not going to tell the story, though it's obvious since the FE doesn't exist anymore that um, it wasn't um, successful. Ultimately, it does merge with the UAW in 1955, um, and so that is part of the story told in the book. So. So people have to read that, but yeah, it is the story. I mean, and you know, one of the things I say in my conclusion is, you know, regardless of how we might have wanted labor to behave differently, we have to always keep in mind. And Amazon is a is is the next example of just how very powerful capital is, you know. And we could wish that that labor leaders behave differently, but you know, ultimately the enemy of working people are those capitalists, and they are, you know as International Harvester is a great example of ever evolving in their responses to, to workers to come up with the best way to undermine um, organizing efforts. And they will continue to do that as long as um, we've got capitalism. So, um, so you know, it's a, it's a story of, 
it's a story of ebbs and flows in in working class history and you know but the struggle is always ongoing and um and it's ongoing right now in just different forms than it than it took than it took in the 1930s and 40s and 50s well tony you have been just wonderful i don't know if you know this but greg and i uh send out bling we send out little thank you notes with uh, <laughs> oh no i didn't know that small trinkets and believe it or not, and we've done this to to Roger, and we had uh, Jennifer Berkshire with the wolf uh -huh. at the door, and the bling that you're going to be getting in the mail is a little Effie, uh, an Effie pin. It's that a, looks great. I can't really see it. It's kind of blurry, but I believe I, you. Well, there you go. You're there, gonna, that's better. Gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, wonderful. So you'll be getting, uh, I'll send you a couple so you can wow, uh, hang that's fabulous. Here. I urge you to join Effie. Yeah, yeah, I wish I could. <laughs> and it'll just be, it'll be a little conversation starter where they'll say, "Oh, I knew someone in that union." Well, I wrote the book, I wrote the book on the union. So yeah, there are not that many people around anymore who are in the union because you know International Harvester having you know occasionally I meet someone whose father worked in International Harvester or something, but it's you know it's it's they're few and far between. But um, well, but, I, but uh, yeah. I had That's friends great. living in Catlin and Peoria area yeah. during the you know late sixties. It was just a it was a bloodbath about how yeah. horrible yeah. they were to their workers yeah. and yeah, oh, uh, caterpillars a whole nother yes. That's I mean, another, terrible that's story too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much and uh, well, thanks for having me. This was great, and um, I hope uh, you let me know what you know what terrific. how to access really this and all that. You will, I'm sure. So okay, and keep writing. I'm I'm trying to figure out what the next project is, but yeah. <laughs> all right, thank you all. Thank you Thanks. very much.